Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Catherine Ingram. The following podcast is yet another Ask Me Anything sourced from emails that people have sent. And by the way, feel free to send in any questions or subjects you'd like to discuss. You can find my email address on the website, katherineingram.com. We're going to be doing these Ask Me Anythings for a while until I have public sessions again. Our first question comes from Ron. I have listened to your podcast for the past few years. I live with my wife in a rural area in the Midwest of America. Our town is relatively small and everyone knows each other, so we feel part of a community that we've known all our lives. But since the start of the pandemic, I have had increasing anxiety. I had never experienced much anxiety before, at least not in an ongoing way. I don't think it has anything to do with fear of COVID, as I caught COVID early on, and it was nothing more than a cold for me. This feeling is more a general foreboding, something you spoke about on a recent podcast. You often encourage us to direct our attention. I wonder if I am misunderstanding how to do that, since I seem to have this anxiety and foreboding much of the time, even when I am directing my attention into gratitude or the senses. Well, I so understand, Ron. So an example that we might consider is, let's say it's a really hot summer day. You're in the summer where you are. Really hot summer day in July. And let's say it's about 100 degrees, which for those of us in the Southern Hemisphere, that would be about 38 degrees Celsius, really sweltering. And you're sitting with your friends. Let's say you're sitting somewhere with your friends. Somebody brings everyone limeades. You're sipping some nice iced limeade. One of your friends tells a joke and everybody laughs. Or you're just feeling a camaraderie. Now, you will be experiencing that with the heat. The heat will be there. You'll be hot. There will be probably a discomfort, especially for someone who lives in the Midwest. (laughs) You're not living in the sub-Saharan where you might be more used to those temperatures. You're living in an area, in a part of the world that is cold a lot of the time, and probably you don't have super hot summers. I don't really know, but you will be experiencing perhaps a general discomfort because of the heat, a background discomfort, let's say, because of the heat. And yet, there you are having the limeade, laughing with your friends, enjoying each other's company. The background heat is just there. It's just there. It's part of the experience. But yet, you might be tolerating it at least, or even managing with the use of your attention to enjoy the things that are enjoyable that you're experiencing. Let's say you're sitting on the same uh, deck. It's super, super hot. And you're maybe even with your friends, but you're just grumbling inside. You're fighting it. You're saying, damn the heat. 
with this state of resistance, you might even be making yourself a little more hot, a little more raising of your own temperature due to the heat of agitation. In a similar way, for those of us who are experiencing what you called foreboding, and I have talked about foreboding, it can be a kind of general background. It's not there all the time, but let's face it, anyone paying attention right now in the world, anyone who's watching the world events, no matter how disinterested one might be, they're, they're making themselves known. You would have had to know that there was a period of two years in which the entire world was on one focus, the COVID pandemic, and that affected everyone's lives, everyone's businesses, everyone's movements, school children, adults, grandparents, everybody. It was, everybody was affected. Now we're affected by the, the increasing prices of food and gasoline and many, many, many things. It's getting harder to get parts. Even if you have no idea what's going on, your own daily experience is sending you messages that things are not as comfortable and easy and, and abundant as perhaps we have been used to. There are a lot of adjustments going on, and that inevitably creates a sense of foreboding. Will it get worse? That's the question, right? You keep thinking, okay, we can adapt to this level, but what if it gets worse? That's a normal human question when faced with a trajectory that seems to be going in one direction. So in my own experience, and that's all I can ever talk about, I do live with foreboding. It's just generally there. I pay attention. I'm way, way deep into the news stories of all kinds. You wouldn't believe the number of threads I follow. Just because I have an interest, I have had a long-time interest. And I actually now see it as part of my own, very much a part of my own Dharma journey, because I feel that the Dharma journey for me is the human experience that I happen to be a human experiencing this with a whole lot of other humans at the same time. Here we are, we're having this experience of humanness. People are coming and going in it. Babies are being born and people are dying. And that for me is just this very interesting anthropological study. So that's partly why I pay so much attention. It's not it's not so much about my particular story in it. I'm of an age where there's a whole lot more of the years are behind me than ahead. It's more just watching the, the human history, the story play out. And it, in my lifetime, it has never felt more unstable on lots of levels. So to your question, about directing the attention it, despite or in concert with the foreboding. That is basically the what's so that we have. That's what, that's what is so. We have to learn how to allow the attention 
to be soft in all of this. And at the same time, there will be times when it is not so soft, when it's hard. But as much as possible, know that yes, okay, there, there is foreboding. It's based on observation that cannot be denied. And yet, do you taste your limeade? Do you laugh with your friends? Do you gaze into the eyes of your loved ones? Do you know what actually matters here and allow for a, a quiet internal celebration of that? That's what we've got here. And by the way, we're historically still the lucky ones living far longer than almost everyone in history did. Almost everyone died at younger ages, on average, than we do. So here we are getting lots of extended life, and we live in very troubled times. But one can still have waves of glee and appreciation of beauty and laughter and love and being wonderstruck by all kinds of things if the attention is spacious and says, okay, everything's welcome, including foreboding. The next question, in fact, the next two questions come from Isabel. I am 24 years of age and I am an avid listener of In the Deep. Catherine, you have spoken many times about the benefits of moving slowly, and I'm not one to disagree with you here. I can speak to the number of advantages that accompany moving slowly and taking one's time. For example, the invaluable levels of depth and focus that I find necessary in order to gain satisfaction from everyday tasks, to enter and sustain flow states and fulfill professional or personal expectations. I have always found comfort in moving at my own pace, and that pace is often a slower one. I like to stop and smell the roses, so to speak, and to practice consideration and mindfulness where possible. Moving slowly allows for this, and more importantly, it allows one the opportunity to be present with and experience concepts and emotions fully. I value these kinds of experiences immensely, ones that allow me to dive deep, ones that can often only be afforded by moving slowly, not sprinting. However, Despite my advocacy of slow movers, I do not know that this is a stance many in the modern world share with me. Perhaps I am wrong here, yet at times being a slow mover can feel isolating, as it is the slow mover's counterpart, the fast mover, who is typically encouraged and celebrated in modern Western culture. I must admit that there have been times where I have felt inadequate in comparison to peers or members of my demographic simply because I choose to take my time in this life. For example, I am in no rush to move out of the family home. My parents are fun people. Life is not a to-do list we must pace through and tick off accordingly. Additionally, I believe our personal perceptions of success can significantly influence the pace at which we choose to move in this life. Success to me is generally instinctive, personal, 
and simple, rarely uniform or grandiose. Perhaps I owe this outlook somewhat to my slower rhythm. My question for you, Catherine, is do you believe it is possible to move too slowly as it is to move too fast? And do you think slow movers could be an increasing trend outside of the bubble that COVID lockdowns afforded us and into the future? <laughs> wow. Well, there's so much here, Isabel. This, this could be an entire talk just on its own. First off, let me just say that slow movers, as you are calling them and yourself, this could be your inherent natural speed. I'm always encouraging people to find their own rhythm or to recognize their own rhythm when they're in it and not force a different type of rhythm, whether too fast or too slow. Some people might feel much more at ease in a faster speed, just like animals, many, many animals. You know, there's the sloth and then there's the leopard. So, you know, they, they go at different speeds. Um, if you are feeling a discomfort about how you're perceived and how you look around and you see all these other people being rewarded for their speed and you feel some kind of doubt about your own way of life, that's something to look at. That's something to challenge because it sounds like you have a lovely life and you're able to pursue your interests and, you know, go at your pace and you like living with your fun parents. And this, this is a, a type of well-being that's very hard to come by, frankly. So some of this question can simply be addressed by you resetting your appreciation for your own life and doubling down on it, knowing that, yeah, you know what? I feel fine in this and this is working for me. And just by the way, a lot of people are moving way too fast. And a lot of it is driven by desperation, by competition, by kind of a white-hot ambition that is all, all about proving, having to prove yourself to feel okay. And it never is enough in those cases. You, you climb to the next rung and then you've got the next one to go to. So that isn't the group that one needs to... Um, feel that you're missing out on, that group is the ones that we hope will slow down for their own health and sanity. A lot of what you've written about here celebrates what gives a richness to life at whatever speed you're going, that you're enjoying it, and that you're able to focus. Now, some people can focus going faster than others. Some people can focus while going fast and enjoy it. I'm saying, please, let's make sure we understand there are different natures going at different speeds. But what you're describing is a lovely kind of enjoyment of being able to, as you say, get quiet enough and mindful enough in what you're doing to really experience the process of it. That is a very lovely lovely thing. You don't have to second guess this aspect of your life. There may be other aspects that come along. You're young and, and incredibly wise, I might add, um, to, to be thinking about these things and looking around and noticing, huh, I seem to be stepping to a different drum. 
and you look at what the culture is broadcasting as the pace to be going, and you think, huh, this, I don't know, is that good? Well, no, our world is going way too fast in general. Maybe some people are perfectly able to live in that world, and they seem to have a great degree created it or directed it that way. It works for them. But a lot of people are not going that fast and don't want to and can't. They would get sick if they do that. And many of them are, unfortunately. There's a madness running, you know, there's a madness in this in this world. And we have to keep up to some degree just to make a living for many of us, you know. You have to kind of stay plugged in more than perhaps is good for us. I've just been reading a book called Stolen Focus. I recommend that for you. You would just agree with everything he's saying. You actually are not someone who needs to read the book. But it's all about the way that our attention has been carved up into these tiny bits and and that we we are losing the ability to actually focus, to actually focus on the things we want to focus on. People's attention is so addicted to moving on to the next thing quickly as soon as there's any kind of lag. So, you know, it's the things we used to normally do, like just read a whole book <laughs> um, or any number of things. You know, somebody, not in this book, but somewhere, someone was saying that children watching nature shows, which now nature shows aren't even that common anymore, but they used to be. But even that was a speeding up of actual nature. So you'd see, you know, many different circumstances of, of animals in the wild doing, you know, wild animal things all in one show, which would have actually taken perhaps months to be equivalent in actual real time in nature. These kinds of ways that we have learned to expect our minds to be quickly entertained and move on to the next thing. Anyway, this book, I, I recommend it, Stolen Focus. and it will perhaps fortify your your way of life. It would encourage you to know that you are probably on the um, best path for you. And I would say you are in a lucky situation to be able to be on that path and to be able to go slow or to delight in going slow and not have anybody pressuring you to go a, a different pace. And our next question also comes from Isabel. Evolutionary psychology and our modern world, she says, I am a very curious individual with a passion for social sciences, particularly psychology and anthropology. Learning about humankind naturally helps me to decipher the world I live in and find corners of calm in both positive and negative circumstances. Of late, I have been thinking about the relationship between evolutionary psychology and our modern world. There are plenty of wonderful things to be grateful for in present times. However, one cannot deny the significant number of current crises we are experiencing globally. I am of the belief, which has been put forward by individuals such as academic Tim Dean and scientist Professor George Paxinos, that perhaps our evolutionary psychology hasn't quite caught up with the world we have created. Given that evolution takes centuries to significantly change, and human beings 
have experienced rapid change at an all-time high within the space of just the last century. Prior to that, change unfolded far more slowly. I wonder if perhaps we are out of step with the modern world that is fundamentally our brainchild. I wonder if you were able to speak to this. Well, yes, this is something I also have thought a great deal about, that we have, that the speed of change is not commensurate with the ability to keep up with this level of speed, as I just said in this last uh, answer to you, that the speed of change is beyond our mental ability to keep up with it, but also that we are physically incapable of processing this deluge of information landing on us each day, um, that we just can't do it. There's, you're not going to know this reference. It It was a television show that was on on in America and perhaps all all over the world called I Love Lucy long before you were born. There's one scene where she's working in a chocolate factory for some reason. She has a temporary job and there it's an assembly line and there are all these like cakes or something coming down the line. And she, in her usual way, manages to really mess up and um, she's just not been able, she can't do it fast enough. So the, the, the cakes are just smashing everywhere as they come to her. She gets so far behind and it's an image. It's a kind of famous one that comes to mind a lot for me in this world that it's just sort of like this assembly line, this endless and ever increasing assembly line of information just roaring through and who can manage? I mean, some people, yes, some people, some brains are more agile with it than others. But uh, I also think there's a cost. So to your question about the the evolutionary component of this, yes, we have not physically or mentally evolved to be handling this modern world, which is probably why so many people are drugged to get through it. And frankly, they're the legal drugs. There's plenty of people using the illegal drugs that can't get to the legal drugs. And then the rest of them are using the legal ones. I mean, that's, think about that. Think about how not that long ago, people were not taking pharmaceuticals in, in any routine way. Now, that's all the rage. And why is that? Even the dogs are being medicated in New York City, I hear, because they have anxiety or anxiety disorders, perhaps because they're not outside much or not enough, and perhaps also because a lot of them are alone in those apartments. In any case, it's truly life out of balance. There was a film from the 80s called Koyana Scotsi, I recommend watching it, and that was even from the 80s, and things are only more sped up since then. I have a podcast interview with Peter Russell called A Crisis of Acceleration. You might want to have a listen to that as well to get an understanding of what we're talking about and the cost of it and and the concern about the evolutionary component of this and what to do. It's the same thing that I said to you in the previous answer, Go at your own pace. You're so fortunate to not be forced to go at any other pace. And just be content in your own life 
and also frankly be an example to others who might have the inclination but don't dare do it and maybe don't know what it looks like when you just live an authentic, quieter, slower life. And I once again acknowledge I know that's a privilege. But a lot of people could indulge in that privilege perhaps more than they do because one of the other things about the addiction to speed is that even on your times, on your so-called downtimes, you're stuffing in more movement, more action, more visuals, more screen, more everything. Instead of just, you know, laying in the lawn chair, you know, in the yard or taking a slow walk or, or cooking a slow meal, things that in your actual action of doing those things, it, it is signaling a, a calming to your neurology. I saw something the other day about, you know, another thing that's all the rage is, is uh, psychedelics for anxiety and for depression and for PTSD and for everything. That's the new rage. We all have been hearing about that, the microdosing world. And, okay, I'm not criticizing it, uh, although I do have some concerns about that as a path. But what I heard on this uh, lecture, and it's something I've known a long time and have suspected even longer, is that a lot of what these, these psychedelics do, they don't turn on neurological pathways. They turn off a lot of them. They turn them off. They turn them down or off. Isn't that interesting? That it's the shutting down of certain noise in the brain that gives these experiences of ego dissolution and of, uh, you know, joy and of bliss and of insight that people routinely experience. The big ahas, the the waves of forgiveness, the, the understandings that come when the brain has become much more relaxed, much more quiet. Cir circuits have been turned off, just like a buzzing refrigerator or something, you know, just suddenly it's... <sighs> and this happens in the kinds of attention, the kinds of ways of using attention in a dharmic fashion, this routinely happens. This happens in our retreats. It happens in people's habitual ways of life, having understood this and starting to make that a habit. So in my own case, I put lots of quiet into my day. I know that's very lucky, but I have set my life up like that. And I've made sacrifices along the way in terms of I didn't pursue any big, you know, job that would have paid. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've done I've done what I had to do to, to live a life that allowed me to just pursue this and to know that from a long from a from an early age, you know, really I started reading Dharma material when I was a teenager. And you know, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was doing full-on intensive meditation retreats and going to Asia. And it just was my, has been my way of life. And of course, now in the last 30-some years, I've been 
leading retreats, which I really think of as me attending the retreats, but you know, I'm sort of hosting, hosting the party, (laughs) but I'm just another person in the room who happens to speak a little bit more than everybody else. But for me, I, I love them. And, and I feel that my it's like my windscreen gets cleaned every time I am in a retreat or even in more daily ways, just doing these very things that I'm speaking about, just taking it easy, having downtime, being bored sometimes, staring at the sky, just being, just being. People forget how to just be. How to just let themselves be with nothing going on. Not feeling like you're supposed to be doing something. Not having a motor running. A motor that's just saying more, more this, more that. What about that? That piece of information. Somebody told me about this website. Somebody told me about this film, this series, this and I'm talking about people when they're off, when they're on their off time. Obviously, if you're in your job, you have things you have to think about and do. But yes, our levels of wisdom and ability to be content and calm are not aligned in general in terms of the habits of humans at this point. It, they're just not aligned in general with a healthy evolution. But it is the evolution. It is that. It is how it's rolling out. And we've just got to see it. And we don't necessarily have to participate in it, or we can do it as little as possible and just be a misfit. Because otherwise you have to fit into a level of what I perceive as an increasing insanity and an, a, a disconnect, a pretty huge disconnect from the natural world. We're moving more and more into artificial intelligence, transhumanism, some kind of bio-cyber creature. That's where it's going. It's what it looks like. And uh, as long as one can hold the line... I say, hold the line and be an example to others. Be a natural human, just for its own sake. This question is from Craig, and I've known Craig for probably 28 years. He started attending Dharma Dialogues long ago, uh, and I haven't seen him in a while, but this is from Craig. Hi, Catherine. I just made a new friend who is Sikh, and we've been discussing the foundations of our beliefs. I think I asked you a long time ago, what philosophy or religion was closest to the one that you teach, if I can use the word teach, for Dharma Dialogues? I don't remember your answer. Is there a philosophy that is a precursor to Buddhism that is close to what you teach? Well, yes, there is one that is actually closest to my way of perceiving the world, and that would be Taoism. But let me make a disclaimer first. I heard a quote from the 
activist, the long ago 60s activist, Abby Hoffman, he said, all the isms are wasms. <laughs> and I subscribe to that. All the isms are wasms at this point. However, I also say, take the best and leave the rest. So there's plenty to be celebrated in lots of the ism religions and philosophies. Uh, but I would say that Taoism is the closest to my way of perceiving and to my experience of a Dharma life in that it is about flow, it is about letting be, it is about letting nature take its course, those kind of ideas. As it happens, in 1974, my then boyfriend, <laughs> my high school sweetheart, and I had gone to um, Naropa Institute in in Boulder, Colorado, where there was this incredible happening, every kind of Dharma um, spiritual gathering of the tribe at the time. Very exciting time, actually, at Naropa Institute in those days. I went for five summers in a row in those years. But on the first summer, my then boyfriend and I were very taken by this text from the third Chan Patriarch, the third Zen Patriarch, he's sometimes called. Seng Stan is his name. And his verses, these beautiful verses, uh, were, were so compelling that we actually published, we made a little booklet, and we published the verses, and we gave them out to the thousand people attending these sessions that we were there for. Ramdas would be on one night and Trumper Rinpoche would be on the next night and they just were ping-ponging all through the, I don't know, eight weeks or something. And then during the day, there would be all manner of other teachers, Tai Chi teachers, some, some of the great beat poets were there, including Allen Ginsberg. You know, there was so much kind of mixture of Dharma and science and people leading meditation trainings from different traditions, people leading all-night chants. Um, it just It was a smorgasbord, but a very, really interesting one of lots of people we had only heard of, primarily through Ram Dass's original book, Be Here Now. So my friend and I published these great ancient verses by Sang Stam, and we handed these little booklets out as a gift at the end of those courses. And then we had so many requests for more of, the, of those little booklets that we started selling them for 10 cents each, which we had my friend's mother handle while we were off on the road on our travels and going to Asia and so on. And it was amazing because here's, here's my friend's mother, you know, in this little house in Virginia Beach, sending these booklets out all over the world. 10 cents plus post postage was the price. And it was kind of this fun thing for her. And I think we sold 100,000 of those. It was all just a at cost endeavor. But um, nevertheless, it was a, a great relationship with those who would have loved the particular Taoist verses that that, that booklet represents. And then um, a couple of years ago, I think it was a couple of years now, I was doing a column for Dumbo Feather 
here in Australia. Great journal, really wonderful journal. I did a column for, for one year in which I would choose texts that had influenced me. And I decided to translate that text and only pick 12 of its many stanzas. I forgot how many there are, but I only picked, I think, 12 to translate. And I translated it in my own way of understanding and in my own selection of what I thought were the most pertinent of the phrases. So I'm going to read those to you. And this will give you a sense of what I understand of Taoist philosophy, maybe what I resonate most with. And it is the closest view, perhaps, um, of the great religions that I could come to speaking about. Although, honestly, no words are going to do it, (laughs) but we'll give it a go. I've translated the title, The Confident Heart-Mind. The great way is not difficult if you are easy in your preferences. When grasping and repelling are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. In the slightest resistance, however, heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. The way is perfect, like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or deny the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglements of outer pursuits nor in inner feelings of avoidance. Be serene in the suchness of things, and confusion will disappear on its own. When you strive for inner quietude, your very effort fills you with disquiet. As long as you strain in dualistic ambitions, you will not know peace. The more you conceptualize it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking about it, and truth reveals itself. When your thoughts are in bondage, reality is obscured and the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. Do not seek the truth. Simply release your opinions. What benefit comes from separations? If there is fixation on right and wrong, the mind will be lost in agitation. The wise strive to no goals, but the foolish fetter themselves. The faster they hurry, the slower they go. The great way is calm and expansive, but those with selfish views are fearful and hesitant. When the mind is in accord with the way, self-centered striving vanishes and the way becomes effortless. Just let things be in their own expression and there will be neither coming nor going. Live simply in accordance with natural laws and within your own nature. One in all, all in one. Realize this, and the heart-mind will be at peace. And now words fail us, for the great way cannot be contained in words or in time, past, present, or future.